We're in a series of expositional messages in the book of Ephesians, along with our study of the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. We find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, in the third of a three-part series in this great section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Before someone can know and understand the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, if you've been with us for these last two messages, you know that I have said they must be told about the bad news of their spiritual condition outside of Christ. And from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we saw the very, very bad news of those who are away from Christ. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Indeed, that is bad news. And if you've been with us, you know that I have said that this particular section, verses 1, 2, and 3, make up the spiritually dead who are followers of the world, the spiritually disobedient who are followers of Satan, and the spiritually depraved who are followers of their own desires. And that is, as I said, indeed very, very bad news. That's the state of mankind. That's the spiritual barometer for everyone who is not a believer in Jesus. And it is incredibly bad news. But, according to verses 4 and 5, there is some good, no, great news for this bad news. And here it is, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And that certainly is great news coming out of the bad. And last time in part two of our series together, I showed you from these verses, verses four to seven, three things. Life from the dead, verses four and five, or what we called spiritual regeneration, where God makes us alive even though we are dead in trespasses and sins. It is by His initiative that He creates life out of the dead, including ourselves, those who know Jesus. And number two, according to verse 6, we have union with Christ. We are in Him. We are raised up with Him. 
We are seated with Him in the heavenlies because we are made alive together with Him. That beautiful doctrine of union with Christ. And then thirdly, from verse 7, we saw what we called eternal kindnesses or eternal displays of God's great kindness. It says, In the coming ages, God might show, that is to us, the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have union with Christ. So that gives you, in just a minute or two, a review of these first two parts. And now we come to the third and final message in this three-part series tonight. And it is here where we're going to focus our attention on verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, in order for us to understand these three verses, I want to simply ask three questions tonight of the biblical text. Just very, very simply, three questions of this passage, verses 8, 9, and 10. Number one, how are we saved? How are we saved? We'll find that out in the first part of verse 8. Number two, what is my response? What is my response? Again, in the middle part of verse 8. And then thirdly, what is the place of works in all of this? What is the place of works in all of this? And that is shown for us in verse 10. So, how are we saved? What is my response? And what is the place of works? Let's look at the first one. Number one, how are we saved? Paul tells us very simply and very declaratively in the first part of verse 8, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. And notice, he uses the word for to start his explanation of grace. And he does that in order to expand on his mentioning the concept of grace already in verses 5 and 7. Look back at verse 5. He says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, spoken of in the second word of verse 4 in our English text, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And then notice the dashes. If you're reading like I am in the English Standard Version of the Bible, you see those dashes there with a parenthetical phrase, by grace you have been saved. And then verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. So he's mentioned the concept of grace twice. And even one time, as I showed you in verse 5, where he's using that explicit, almost exact phrase, by grace you have been saved. And here he says, for by grace you have been saved. Because the for is telling us 
exactly what he means by what he has just said in those other two references. He's going to explain it. He's going to tell us. Salvation, Paul says, is granted by God and is declared by Paul here to be the very ground of our deliverance from sin's bondage and sin's condemnation. It's the very grounding of our salvation. There's nothing else, Paul says, that saves us. It is by grace and grace alone. It is solely by the grace of God that we are right with God. That's his point. He explains it. There's absolutely no mention here of any kind of merit whatsoever which, con- which uh, contributes to our redemption. There can't be, because in verses 8 and 9, he utterly rules out any human merit whatsoever, completely. And if there was any human merit or any human achievement of any kind from the smallest ounce of it to the greatest amount of it, it would render the word grace null and void, right? Utterly meaningless. Because grace is the idea of God bestowing His unmerited favor upon us. And notice, unmerited favor. So there can't be any merit on our part which then deserves the grace of God or brings the grace of God because it is God's grace, that is His unmerited favor that comes to us through no works of any kind as we will find out in a moment. And that's why he says in verses 4 and 5, God is rich in mercy and He has this great love with which He has loved sinners even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Do you see that back up in verse 1? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were walking according to the world. You were walking according to Satan. You were following this this power of the air, this satanic onslaught in your life. You once lived in the passions of your flesh. You were dead and God had to revive you, spiritually speaking. And when He did, He wanted to communicate a message to you as a dead person made alive. I'm giving you My grace and it's not anything you've done to earn or merit it whatsoever. That's what He's saying. God showered His immeasurable grace His unmerited favor upon us precisely because it is by grace alone that we're delivered from the wrath to come. You notice how we were characterized in the end of verse 3? We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of what? Wrath. Children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Jews and Gentiles who are outside of Christ, are children of wrath, sons of disobedience. And God wants to give His elect, according to chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, His grace, His chosen grace, His sovereign grace, and He wants to bestow that even while we are dead in trespasses and sins and sons of disobedience because He wants to make the point that there is nothing inherent within us that deserves such rich mercy and great love. That's His point. And so I ask you this evening, what are you trusting for your hope of heaven? 
and for eternal life. If there's even the smallest iota of your perception that your works, your confidence, your competence plays a part in your salvation, Paul says, it isn't grace. It isn't grace. You say, well, it's grace to the largest degree. There's just this one small contribution that I'm making. And it's like putting a flask of water down on a table and putting just one tiny drop of ink into that water and what happens to the water itself. It immediately becomes diluted with the ink. Just this morning, after the morning service, when I was extolling the grace of God and God's calling us to be disciples of Jesus Christ by grace alone, I had the occasion to talk with someone who walked up to me and as we were talking, he said, my idea of of getting to heaven is my moral goodness. And we had an excellent opportunity for dialogue about what the nature of true salvation really is. Because anyone who would assume that they had even the smallest amount of inherent moral goodness is not going to be that which ushers you into heaven, it will be that which sends you to a Christless eternity. Because if you're banking on that, if, if you're sold out to the truth that it's God's grace, yes, but it also includes my working my way to heaven so that at some point when I stand before the Almighty, it's both what He did for me and what I did for Him, then Paul says, that's not grace. That's not grace. You've nullified the grace of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul was telling not only these Gentiles, but also the Jews who were assuming that at least in part, it's my obedience to Torah that allows me then to have some kind of favor from God. And I've told you before, there are millions, if not multiplied millions of people in the world who assume that they will indeed stand one day before God and believe that at least they had to do something. And I was able to tell this gentleman, there are only two religions in the world. The religion of divine accomplishment, what God has done in Christ by grace, through faith, with no works of any kind, or it's the religion of human achievement. I at least do some of it. And I believe that when Paul is speaking here, he is saying, according to the Holy Spirit's inspiration of his very pen, that salvation is by God according to the Word of God, and it cannot be in any way an admixture of grace and human merit, lest the grace of God become something other than His favor lavished upon us. Something He does for us that we don't do for ourselves. And this view of grace and works, whatever the percentages, diminishes God's glorious grace. And it's an attempt to bring some level of glory or commendation to ourselves. That's what's inherent even in the thought that I do some of it. Even if someone says, yes, but I'd like to contribute just a little bit. Yes, but if you do, then somehow in your works theology, you're wanting to say, I had a part in saving myself. And Paul says it's excluded. How are we saved? 
by grace. By grace alone are you saved. Number two. Number two, what is my response? What is my response to the grace of God? Notice what he says in the middle part of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. And I should say right here at the outset, don't confuse the root of salvation, grace, with the fruit that comes on the heel of it. The fruit that comes on the heel of it, the instrumental means whereby God grants us this salvation by grace, is our faith. That's not the cause of my salvation. It isn't the grounding of my salvation. The grounding of my salvation is God's grace and God's grace alone. The instrumental means whereby I grasp this God who reaches out to me is my trust in Jesus Christ and what He did at Calvary. That's, that's what God gives to me as a response to the means of seeing the truth, which means He revived me spiritually, He regenerated my soul, and when my eyes were opened and when I saw the truth about my condition, then I saw God's grace for the first time in my life and I realized I had no part in my salvation whatsoever and I wanted that salvation and the apparatus, the appropriation, the reception of that grace is through faith. Through faith. Salvation, my friends, has always been by grace alone. And it is through faith alone. You see, that's why... When the Protestant reformers broke away from the church at Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, in those mid-1500s, they were contending against Rome because Rome was a works-oriented system that says, oh yes, 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 it is by grace. It is by grace. But what God does is that He infuses you with grace not, not imputing it to you, but infusing it into your life so that with the additive of grace, you can then combine that grace with your good works so that through faith, you might one day possibly be accepted by God. And the Reformers came along and said, no, there are some Latin phrases that precisely give us what Scripture teaches, and one of those is sola gratia, by Grace alone. And then they said, and it is also sola fide. It is through faith alone. Because that's the instrument whereby I receive God's grace. Grace is the ground. Faith is the means where that grace is appropriated. And you might ask the question, what is faith? Okay, if you're telling me that it is by grace alone, yet it is through faith, then what is faith? Well, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and this may be the Bible's clearest, most succinct definition in Hebrews chapter 11 of the concept of faith. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 6. This is, of course, the great chapter on faith. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith, here's the definition, faith is, it is something, 
And the writer to Hebrews says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's the assurance, it's the certainty of things hoped for. I want it to come to pass. I believe God. I want His salvation. I I long for the certainty of my eternity with Him. And it is the conviction of things not seen. I don't see it right now in terms of uh, the physical part of me. I don't see it, but I believe with the assurance of what I've hoped for, I'll have the conviction of things that I don't currently see. And then verse 6. This is the negative. And without faith, trust, confidence, adherence to the object of our faith, Jesus and His death, His burial, His resurrection from the dead. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, that is God, for whoever would draw near to God. That's one of those phrases in the book of Hebrews that's talking about salvation. Whoever would be saved must believe that He, God, exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And someone says, ah, but it says rewards there. So so maybe this salvation is as a result of God rewarding me for something I do. Remember now, faith is the instrumental means. Faith, Faith is the conduit by which I grasp God's grace. I seize God's grace because He's opened my eyes through regeneration. Remember, I had a dead soul. I was lost in trespasses and sins. God raised me up, spiritually speaking, to show me the truth about myself and my deadness. And then when He showed me God's grace, the unmerited favor that I knew I didn't deserve, He says, and the vehicle by which you receive this grace is faith. Faith alone. No works of any kind. Faith alone. Faith is the, is the tool. It's the instrument. It's the lever by which we grasp the divine grace that is extended to us by God. In fact, look at uh, Abraham because he's the father of, of our faith. Look at Romans chapter 4. This is, this is very, very clear in Paul's teaching from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. Now, this chapter is, is virtually filled with the person of Abraham and what God did in him. And in Romans chapter 4, look at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. You see, if you had the smallest part of you that had some play in the idea of God's salvation of you, you would want to boast about it. That's what human nature does. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, there's the idea of faith, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Right standing with God. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You work a job, you say to your boss at the appointed time, where's my check? Where's my wage? Because I worked for this. You owe me that. And that's the way the one who works, that's the way his mindset is. His wages are counted not as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but trusts. Another synonym for faith. 
But that one who trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then verse 20, just to show you the end of Romans 4. No distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. That was the, that was the conviction of things not seen. That God would grant an heir, right? And he didn't waver. In fact, he was so trusting of a sovereign God that when he was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac and he drew the knife blade back, if we went back to Hebrews 11, we would find that in that hall of faith, talking about Abraham, it says that Abraham so believed God that even if he took his only son's life, that God, Abraham believed, would raise Isaac from the dead. That's faith. That's faith. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I love that. Fully convinced. That's the conviction of things not seen, that God was able to do what He had promised. So, asking the question, what is this salvation that I have? It's by grace. It's by grace. By grace alone. And what's my response? By faith alone. By faith alone. These are the kinds of texts that the Reformers were studying and used in their fight against Rome and to which we fight even to this day. Number three, and finally tonight. Number three. Where is the place of works in all this? I mean, it is mentioned here. Look at the latter part of verse 8 all the way through verse 10. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So there, works is mentioned twice, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, in a sense, to answer the question from Paul, uh, where is the place of works in all this? He says, let me give you two answers. I'll give you two answers here. Two answers to this question. The first, about where our works play into all of this, covered in the latter part of verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8c says, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Sounds a little bit like Romans 4, right? Nobody can boast in their works. Why? Because salvation is not of your own doing. If it were, like the wages of Romans 4, you'd say, where's my due? Where's my check? Where's my wage? I work for this. So the first thing we need to do is determine what is the this referring to? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the this and what's the it? And there have been uh, quite a bit of uh, exegetical ink used on describing this. Because some people say, well, what he's saying is the this is grace. And maybe the it is faith. And someone says, no, I think the this is speaking about everything. And that's the camp I fall in. 
I believe that what Paul is saying contextually in this entire section of verses 1 to 10 is that this grace and this faith is not of your own doing. We certainly know that that's true about grace, right? Because he's explicitly stating it. But it's also faith, in my judgment. Even faith is a gift of God. You say, well, wait a minute. Didn't you tell me that we had to have faith? Yes. Isn't that something that I conjure up? My faith? It's like the little train that could. Got to have faith. Got to have faith. Got to have faith. I think here's the answer. This grace and this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace alone is the gift of God and faith alone is the gift of God. And when God grants you grace, He also grants you the opportunity to see that you can receive Jesus Christ by that grace and that gift of faith is by His doing as well. It's by His doing. Now why would I say it that way? Because contextually, He says, not as a result of works that no one may boast. And human nature being what it is, even a person who's surrendering to the grace of God might want to say, yes, well, I received the grace of God, but my faith was my own. My faith was my wage. My faith was my work. My faith is my part. And that's what a lot of Christians believe. And you know, if that were true, that would mean that grace comes from God, faith comes from human beings. You say, well, I'm the one that has to do it. I'm not a robot. I'm not an automaton. I need to express my faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, you do. But where does it come from? Where is its origin? And the answer is, it comes from God. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the gift of God. And I think what we do by that is, again, we, we protect This concept of God's doing. We protect that it is God regenerating us. We protect that it is God giving us union with Christ. We are protecting the very very idea that salvation is totally of God and none of me. You say, yeah, but don't we express faith in Christ? Yes, we do. And that too is a gift of God. And aren't you glad of that? If I had to assume that my faith, what I conjured up, what I engineered, what I came up with, and whatever percentage of faith I had, if I mustered the, the, the faith of a very, very, very faithful man, then maybe I might possibly potentially get to heaven. No. I want even the faith that I have to be received by God's gift of grace so that I know that that faith even itself comes from Him. And by the way, do you know that that's the same thing about repentance? You know, we say that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin in this idea of man's response to God's grace. If faith is the gift of God, so is repentance. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, verse 18, and I'll show you that this is precisely what the Bible says. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. You know there, Peter is reporting to the church that the the Gentiles were also being included in God's salvation plan. And in verse 17 it says, If then God gave the same gift 
to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's faith. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Do you see? That's saying that God grants the gift of what? Faith. Faith. Same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed. Then verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Faith is a gift. So is repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25. This also says that repentance is a gift of God. 2 Timothy 2.25 Paul says, correcting opponents with gentleness if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do you know if anyone ever repents, it's because God gave them that gift to do so. If anybody ever has faith in Christ, they believe in Christ, it is as a direct result of God giving them that gift. This is what the Bible says. Now you say, well, but you still haven't answered the question. You said there were two uses of the concept of works here. And yes, that's one of them that we've just gone over. Here's the second one. Here's the second answer about good works. Because here's, here's what we're charged. Often when we teach things like this, here's what we're charged, especially even by Rome. Well, so then you don't believe in good works. You don't believe they're necessary. You don't believe they have any part in salvation. And so you eschew good works. And therefore, you might be one of those antinomians, someone who has an attitude against the law of God. And our answer to that is no, no, a thousand times no. May it never be. Because of verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see that? We're created in Christ Jesus. And by the way, that created word there is a passive, which means we have been created, which again puts it in the realm of the divine and not that we are creating ourselves in Christ Jesus, but we are created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works, which God has prepared beforehand. That means an eternity past that we should walk in them. Boy, what a great way for him to end this section. This this phenomenal section about the deadness of of our sinful lives, our disobedience, our depravity, but God being rich in mercy with this great love with which He loved us and He created us to be alive and He gave us union with Christ and He seated us in the heavenly places. He's co-resurrected us from the dead. And He tells us it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not yourself. It's not your own doing. It's what God has done to grant you that grace and to grant you that faith and to grant you that repentance. And God has created from eternity past a good works theology that you and I as believers will do We will perform them because God has prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. Walk daily pattern of life. And you say, what are those good works? He doesn't say anything about them here. Where where are those good works? What are they? Okay, are you ready? I'm going to go real fast. Okay, you want to write this down. Six good works. Six good works. 
I'm looking at the clock just like you are. Six good works. Here's the first one. First one. Walk worthily. Walk worthily. What do I mean? Well, if Paul is talking about these good works here, and he says God's prepared them in eternity past, He's, he's created you as God's masterpiece, God's workmanship, God is creating you to be conformed to the image of His Son, then what practically are those good works going to look like? Here they are. Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. And the first one is walk worthily. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4. And you might even call this, if you don't like walk worthily, call it the unity walk. The unity walk. God's prepared you to walk in unity. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy, walk worthily, of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's a worthy walk. It's a worthy walk. You want to you know what those good works are? Unity. Unity. Number two, the talk walk. The talk walk. Look at verse 17 of Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. There's our key word again, peripateo, as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. No, no, that's not you. That's not the way you learned Christ. Verse 20, verse 21, assuming you have heard about Him and you were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old man to put on your new man, verse 24, and then, here's what it practically looks like. Here's, here's primarily your speech, verse 25, putting away falsehood. Speak the truth in love with your neighbor, for we're members of one another. Don't be angry. Don't steal. Let no corrupting talk, verse 29, come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't have bitterness, verse 31, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, all talk words, talk ideas, talk concepts, being put away from you along with all malice, kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the talk walk. So unity, that's good works. Talk, that's good works. Third, let's call it the pure walk. Walk lovingly. Walk worthily. Walk newly. Walk lovingly. Look at chapter 5. Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Walk in love. Walk lovingly. And he goes on to describe it. And and what's one of the ways to walk in love? Not being sexually immoral, impure, covetous with each other, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, have thanksgiving, This is what you ought to have. Here's number four. Walk lightly. Not as in softly, but walk in light. Look at verse 6 of of Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
You see what he does in, in verse 10 of chapter 2? He says, these are good works that God's prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. And then he takes that very term walk and he walks us through chapters 4, 5, and 6, the so-called practical section of Ephesians. And this is what he says, the unity walk, the talk walk, the pure walk, and let's call this the enlightened walk. The enlightened walk. Walk as a children, walk as children of light. Walk as a child of light. You're, you're no longer part of the darkness. If you were part of the darkness, you'd be unenlightened. You'd be walking in the darkness. You'd be walking in the futility of your mind, like he says, darkened in your understanding. But because you are a, a child of light, walk in an enlightened way. Number five, walk wisely. Walk wisely. Walk worthily. Walk newly. Walk lovingly. Walk lightly. And walk wisely. Look at chapter 15 of Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the, use of the time because the days are evil. And how should we walk? We should be filled with the Spirit. We should walk in the Spirit. And then from the rest of this chapter all the way through chapter 6 of verse 9, it says here's how this walk in the Spirit, here, here's how to be controlled in the Spirit, affects everything in the household. Wives, husbands, children in the community, slaves, masters. It affects everybody in the Christian community. We could probably call this the spiritual walk. The spiritual walk. You're walking wisely. And then number six, and finally, walk strongly. Walk strongly. Or maybe we could call this the warfare walk. Ephesians 6. Put on the armor of God. I mean, we, we know that the devil wants to destroy us. He wants to, to slay us with all his flaming darts. What do we do? Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord. Strength of His might. Put on the armor of God. So you can resist the schemes of the devil. Walk worthily. Walk newly. Walk lovingly. Walk lightly. Walk wisely. Walk strongly. We're talking about the unity walk, the talk walk, the pure walk, the enlightened walk, the spiritual walk, and the warfare walk. You know what? If, if all we did was focus on the book of Ephesians for the rest of our Christian lives, that would be enough of the good works that have been prepared for us from eternity past that would take us every ounce of our effort to do that kind of walk, right? This is, this is the Apostle Paul saying, this is, the, this is the walk of the Christian. And by the way, in chapter 2, did you notice that he talks about walk in verse 10, which is the absolute antithesis of the walk in verse 1 of that same chapter? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, what? Walked. Now you're walking in good works. Aren't you so grateful to God that He took you out of the walking dead and gave you the walk of life. What a, what a reason. What an opportunity to praise God. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, as we consider the how of our salvation, 
we truly praise You because it's by grace. And when we consider the what of receiving this salvation, it is through faith. And the way our works relate to those two things, well, we certainly can't boast of our own contribution to salvation because we have none. But we do have good works. And they're the works that you yourself have prepared before the world began. Creating in us conformity to the image of your Son because you've commanded us and you have gifted us to walk in them in the course of our Christian life. Father, thank you for a great look in these three messages at what happened before I knew Christ. What was the truth of my spiritual condition? And then my receiving Christ. And now these good works which give evidence of my salvation and show what my life is like after receiving Christ. What a great three-part testimony of what You've done and what You're continuing to do in our lives. May we praise You and thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.